says, now is the time for the leader to qualify. And it says, please stand when sharing so all may hear and see. So I'm going to feel like I'm giving a uh, motivational talk up here. Um, so, hi, I am Aaron. I am a compulsive overeater. I am a hundred pounder. Um, I'm going to send pictures around so the people in the room uh, can see what it was like. And also because nobody ever believes me. Um, but I was a uh, hundred pounds and more heavier than I am today. I came into program in uh, 2011, in the fall of 2011. My abstinence date is February 1st of 2012. And since getting abstinent, I have lost at the peak uh, 116 pounds. Right now, I'm hovering around the 110, 111 territory. And because I'm a compulsive overeater, I know exactly where that is. Like, I'm tracking those, those four to five pounds, and I live in absolute fear of, go, of, of becoming a 99 pounder again. Um, <laughs> That it, it's true that for a while, um, one of the things that happened when I got in the program was I started running. And the last time I shared at this meeting was just before I did the L.A. Marathon for the first time in my life, which was last year. And um, since doing that marathon, I've kept up running occasionally, but I'm not currently training for a marathon. So the weight starts to sneak back up. I also did some other fun things like go through a breakup. Um, volunteered for the OA birthday party, you know, lots of stuff that helps you stay calm and centered <laughs> and uh, happy. Um, so the weight started to sneak back up, and um, I'm still a compulsive overeater because the closer that got to no longer, you know, the closer I got to no longer being able to say I've lost 100 pounds, the more my self worth became questionable. Um, Another example of that happened just yesterday. I was standing at the, we have a machine at the office that makes coffee. You put your cup under it, you push the button, and then you sit there while it clicks and whirs, and eventually it gives you the coffee that you want. And um, so I'm standing there waiting for my cup to get filled up, and a woman comes over, and she's got her cup, and, and she stands there for a second, she waits, she looks at her watch, she throws her cup away and leaves. And the first thought that goes through my head is, she saw the fat guy waiting for a cup of coffee and said, oh, I should cut down on coffee and left. And the second thought was, Aaron, people decide to do things all the time that have nothing to do with you. She wants. She said, I'll come back in 10 minutes and I'll go check my email or I'll make that phone call, whatever. It wasn't until the third thought that I said, wait, I'm not fat anymore. And that was something that's been sticking in my head because um, Peter asked me to share here and I thought, what am I going to share about? And for me, I want to share about the mental obsession. The difference between today and tomorrow is that the third thought was I checked in on the reality of the statement. Uh, in the old days, I was a fat guy. And if I go to that reality of the statement trying to say, should I feel bad about this? My reality said, well, yes, you should. You're fat. So obviously there's validity to this crazy thought you're having. But in a way, I learned how to do that second thing. That thing where I stop reading other people's minds. I stop trying to think about what other people are thinking about me. And I remind myself that I'm just one person in the world walking around and most people are not concerned with the number on the scale or the number on my pants or how I look at all. So um, going back to the format, uh, what it was like, the pictures show it. Um, I was the fat guy uh, since I was about 11 years old. I started getting heavy around nine. Um, and that's, you know, you hit puberty. I started getting heavy. My family always got heavy around that time period. Um, they had a standard set of advice that they gave, which they didn't have program. They didn't have a solution to offer. They offered what they did have. But what they did have was a series of things that could systematically fail. And at the end of failing to make this diet work, make that diet work, make this philosophy work, they could say, well, I guess we're just fat people. You get over it. It's fine. You move on with your life. But this is your lot. 
So I went through a lot of life wondering why I was cursed with a body that I wasn't happy with, why I was trapped in it, and wondering why I had some kind of... It's always about how special I am, right? It's always about my metabolism must have some unique little tiny quirk about it. Like, you know, I'm like a gremlin. Like, oh, I could have sugar, but I can't have sugar after 10 o'clock at night because then it'll be bad. Or, or you know, it, it has to do with the mood I was in when I'm having this food or that food. And for me, that doesn't work. I've, I came into program and I had to accept and Jeff, who, who uh, explained his abstinence, was my first sponsor. And I have his abstinence. I have a list of red light foods that I don't eat. And I have a uh, parameters around what what is a healthy meal that I can eat. And the reason for that is because I have a physical allergy to certain food substances. Some people in the world that came ahead of me realized that they had a specific allergy to a specific food substance called alcohol. And they realized that the only way they were ever going to be able to live sanely and happily in this world was if they accepted that it was a medical necessity that they never drink alcohol again. And because that's a really tall order to put on people in this world, um, where everybody goes out for drinks at the end of the week or everybody goes out, you know, has, has alcohol at the high celebrations, you know, where they serve alcohol in church. Um, they had to come up with a way to explain to themselves or a way to live in the world that said, well, I must be different than other people. Am I less than other people? And the answer is no. God loves us just as much as he loves anyone else. Um, but we have this medical condition. So... Uh, I'm wandering all over the, all over the place. Um, here's, what it, here's what happened. I grew up heavy. I identified as the fat kid. I would get a lot of skinny, athletic friends. I would impress them by being really smart. I would impress them by having a very dark, ironic, dry sense of humor. I was not going to be the dancing fat clown. I was not going to be the jolly fat guy. I could be witty and also be a little bit kind of scary and dark at the same time. And that way you knew I wasn't like... I wasn't happy about being fat. That was kind of an important thing to me. I wanted you all to know I was just, I was, I was rightly miserable about the way I looked. Um, I never um, could take my eyes off the weight issue. And so I had aspirations towards being a writer. I had aspirations towards being an actor. I had vague ideas about the direction I wanted my life to take, but they were always interrupted by this obsession with how I looked. I would look at a movie poster and this is a fake movie, it doesn't actually exist, but I could look at a movie poster that has John Goodman, Danny DeVito, and Matt Damon on it, and my brain says, you have to look like Matt Damon if you want to be in the movies. I just discount anything that doesn't actually serve that obsessive thought that my weight is keeping me from the life that I want. So every time I thought, I want to become an actor, I didn't say, let me go to acting class, I said, I want to, so let me go to the gym, and let me go to the bookstore, and let me peruse all of the diets, it's going to be the, the, the body type diet this time. It's going to be the China diet. It's going to be any number of other ones. Let me go to the commercial weight loss programs. That's, it worked for this star or that star who just spoke about how they lost a bunch of weight. It was always that. My body always had to be ready before I did anything else in my entire life. So I got to the age of 30 and I did not have a career. I did not have uh, any romantic things going on in my life. Um, and I did not have, uh, both of my parents have passed away. And I didn't have anything going for me, so I decided to do the last thing that was left to do, which is go crazy. And I am, if you've heard any of the, I feel like I have other podcasts. I'm the guy who ran away with the circus. And I ran away with the circus, and if you want to talk about geographic cures, go to a different city every single week. <laughs> 
It is a wonderfully addictive lifestyle. I met addicts of all kinds at the circus. They're awesome people. Um, great to work and live with, especially if you can do both at the same time. It's awesome. Um, I met a lot of alcoholics, and it was funny because I remember asking people, has anyone ever thought about starting AA? Like here at the circus, they have church at the circus. They hold a, a weekly mass and the Catholic Church actually uh, assigns someone. Uh, there is a priest whose job it is to minister specifically to the circus, uh, but they don't have AA. I said, have you guys ever thought about starting AA? And they said, honestly, if we think if people stop drinking, the first thing they do is leave. Like, <laughs> so wasn't in the cards. Um, but I got to know, like, that must be one of the things that helped. I was working with people who had other addictions and I developed a very strong judgment about people with addictions when I left the circus it was because I thought I was going to be a dad and um, I had a baby with a, with a woman and helped her raise it and helped support her and things were very dramatic and things were very chaotic and uh, after a year I found out that the baby was actually never mine um, and that is what I identify as my bottom is um, it was really that sensation that I lived in a house with somebody who lied to my face constantly and consistently. And my reaction was, well, this makes me uncomfortable, but if I have a couple of bits of chocolate, if I have some string cheese, if I eat this or that, or as long as I get to go out to these big breakfasts with the family, it's fine, I can put up with it. And I realized that I was completely checked out of my life. And I mean, there was also the binging. I never identified as a binger when I came in the room. So people talk about going on binges and I had visions of like, sitting yourself down in front of the refrigerator and just shoveling anything in your mouth no matter what it was. I'm like, well, I never did that. I mean, but my binges were, I would take a notepad or a laptop, I would go to a buffet restaurant, I would sit down and say, I'm being very economical now because I can sit here, I can write my great American novel or screenplay, and um, there's, I, I don't have to go, I don't have to keep buying coffee. I, all this here, I can eat whatever I want. And what I wound up doing was eating away any emotion that you would ever actually try to express through writing. Um, that was my bench. I, I never secretly ate. I say this all the time. I never secretly ate. I was not a sneak eater. I didn't grab a, a, a thing of Oreos and then go sit in the closet. Uh, what I did was I would wake up, and I would wake up naturally before my alarm clock, um, just like a half hour before the fast food restaurants stopped serving breakfast. So then it was all about, it wasn't like I desperately um, want this food. It was I'm just racing the clock. Like, if I want it, I have to get it now because it's about to stop and then I have to wait a whole, like, 24 hours before I could possibly have this wonderful stuff again. And I would go and I would never... I have a thing where I can't pick between two different breakfast sandwiches at this one restaurant, so I got both value meals. And then I got one with coffee and one with orange juice because then the guy behind the counter knows I'm not eating both of them. Nobody's having coffee and orange juice. That's ridiculous. Um, I'd get back... (laughs) I'd get back to... um, the house, the stuff would be gone already. And it's like a five-minute drive. And I would just inhale it there. I've got my treat. I don't even know if I want it, but I got it. And, so, and there was a time limit on it, so I must have, been, I must have gotten a deal. Um, all of the wrappings, papers, and everything were gone before you know, I went in the house. And I lived with roommates. I lived, <clears throat> I lived with my family. who would, They would then be getting up at this late hour because they're not racing any clocks. And they would say, hey, we were thinking about going to get breakfast. And I'd say, oh, I'll go with you. And at the time, I'm thinking... I'll go with them and I'll just have coffee. And by the time we're getting in the car, it's, uh, oh, you know, this is, it took them a while to shower and stuff, so I'll have coffee and some toast. I mean, I, let's not be unreasonable here. And by the time the car is at the restaurant, it's, okay, I'm just going to have, you know, two eggs, bacon, to- like a very simple breakfast. And by the time the waiter's asking me what I'm ordering, I'm just like ordering what I always order. 
and asking for extra of this and extra of that and can you double the toast on it and telling myself I'm not going to eat lunch. This is it until 5 o'clock and then I'll have dinner. <clears throat> but I, you know, I wasn't a sneak eater. That was my other favorite activity. I loved going out to eat with other people. I loved comparing the food I was eating to the size of the meal they were eating and saying, see, I don't know what it is. I don't know why I'm fat. I eat the same thing everybody else does. I mean, six times a day I sit across from people and I eat the same thing that's on their plate and somehow I'm getting heavy and I don't know why. Um, and that was it. That was the mystery. So I've got this situation where I realize I'm, I'm financially, morally, um, and emotionally tied to this young child. I've got a person who's completely crazy, dishonest, uh, uh, abusive, and um, living with me and my family. And I have this problem where I can't trust my brain. So I go to my sponsor, not my sponsor, I go to my therapist, who could technically be my first sponsor. And I said, at this point, I don't know, I don't trust my own brain. Like if I had a bright idea right now, I wouldn't listen to it. I don't know what you do if you can't trust your own brain. I don't know what else there is. And my therapist said, I know what you do if you don't trust your own brain. And she started talking to me about finding 12-step groups. Support groups was what we talked about originally. I was the sole caretaker for my mom when I was younger, and I never went and got any support. Ate my way through it. Um, it went away through most of my problems. It never occurred to me in my youth that I could go and find the people who had dealt with what I was trying to deal with. Um, I had fa- a family that was incredibly smart, a family that insisted I get a humanities education, that I be incredibly smart, that I be very analytical, and a family that had absolutely no fear of giving you advice on how to do something they had never once done in their entire life. They had no problem doing that. My family members are engineers, they are executives, they are uh, legal secretaries, but they're going to tell you how, from their point of view, you make it in Hollywood. They're going to tell you from their, from, from their position of having never lost weight, they will tell you how to lose weight. Um, the... So I didn't, I didn't think maybe a qualification for, for whether or not somebody has any input on what I'm going to do with my life is that they've actually done what I want to do. And that was the new idea that my therapist suggested was maybe you go talk to people that have actually dealt with things that you're dealing with. So I went looking at 12-step groups. I qualify for a few. Um, I uh, found a list that um, listed all the 12-step groups like in the Los Angeles area. And the one that was happening next was an OA meeting that was two blocks away from my house and it was happening the next morning. And when I came into these rooms, I said to myself, okay, I'll take care of the weight too. But I honestly did not come in here for the vanity. I came in here for the sanity. I found the vanity later. Like I I realized I wanted the vanity too after the fact. But I came in these rooms because I was insane. And I've accepted that insanity pretty much since the moment I walked in. And then I found sponsors who would let me still do my argument thing because I do like to argue. I did a 30 and 30, and that's how I found my sponsor. And I started talking to him about, I called him up one day, I got him on the phone after failing to run into him at a few meetings uh, that I'd heard he attended. And uh, he told me how he sponsored, he told me about red light food lists, he told me about picking and abstinence and and rules around the food. And he said, and you know, call me every once in a while uh, to check in. So I called him every single day before 9 a.m. And that was because that's what I needed. I took OA seriously because I needed structure and purpose in my life. First year in program, I did not date. And because I'm a compulsive overeater, when I say year, I mean nine months. (laughs) I am. (laughs) For the first year in program, I did not date for nine months. And um, yeah, that's it. I wanted to take it as seriously as people in AA took it. I was going to call my sponsor every day. I was going to get to five meetings a week. I was going to not date. I was going to not screw with anything. I was going to settle down. I was going to 
going to do the steps. I was surprised to find out that after not dating for a year and working your program as diligently as possible, people would still break up with you. <laughs> that was not one of the promises listed in the big book that you will still have to deal with breakups and rejection and, and, and expectations. Uh, so um, that was hard to deal with. And I've heard it said by other people who are smarter than me that if you can get through heartache in abstinence, then you know you've got something. Like then you know you're on the right track. Um, my, I like this story, so I'm going to tell it. It's on all the other podcasts. But I said, my sponsor said to me, so when do you think you're going to start your abstinence? And it's towards the end of January. And I said, February 2nd. And he said, why February 2nd? And I said, we only have one day at a time. So I'm picking Groundhog's Day, and it's going to be like the Bill Murray movie. I'm going to live it over and over and over again. That's my one day at a time forever. And my sponsor said, that's really clever. How about you stop now? (laughs) And it was February 1st, and I was standing in front of the shelf of food and all the the things that I actually didn't like but had to have before I could go to sleep. Um, And I had permission to go on my one last binge. If you have not yet gone on one last binge... I recommend doing it before you get your absence because they're great. I did like 30 or 40 of them in my life. They are fantastic. They completely fail to do what you want them to do, which is burn out the binge circuit. They will not do it. Uh, You are actually a very strong, resilient creature. You can throw a lot at yourself and you're going to bounce right back. Um, So um, a little tiny voice in my head said, if you go to sleep right now, you have one day. And so that's what recovery looked like on day one, was I went to sleep at about 8.30, 9 o'clock at night. And eight, the second I woke up the next morning, um, but was able to tell my sponsor I have one day and was able to go into meetings and start saying I have one day and I started counting. I've been holding on to that day for a little over three years now. So, um, yeah, I will clap, I clap for recovery. Um, what it's like now. These are the instructions that I've gotten from all the sponsors I have. I, I keep doing what works. I don't change something unless it stops working. I wake up every morning and I get on my knees and I pray. I picked a list of prayers. This, this morning I'm actually starting to think, this one's not working for me anymore. Maybe I should go look up about a prayer that's more about this thing going on in my life. But every morning I say, I, I say a set of prayers. I say um, the St. Francis prayer, which is the Lord making a channel of thy peace. I say a prayer for the little girl that I helped raise for the first year of her life. Um, I say a prayer uh, for my sexual and romantic sobriety. I say a prayer. Uh, I say the uh, a prayer for any person that I have resented in the past 24 hours. I, I, my experience of a compulsive mind is I'm in the car and this red light is taking too long. And here's what I really want to say to that guy that you know pissed me off yesterday at work, who already apologized for it. Um, I, I fume. It's one of the things I do as a time as a time passing activity, and that's a resentment. And uh, if I've got resentments like that, they go on my tenth step, and then I say the resentment prayer for those people. I'm not perfect about it, but like that's I believe that that is what helps keep me sober. Um, and then I say the set aside prayer for anything on my mind, and I say um, the serenity prayer at the end. And then I'm ready to get up, start the shower, start my day, make breakfast, feed and walk the dog, and then get to a meeting. I love getting to meetings um, before I do anything else during the day. I love 7.30 meetings in Santa Monica because it, by 6 o'clock at night, I have already gone off the rails. If I have to wait until after work, uh, program's not working for me. I'm, I'm coming in to say sorry about how I didn't work program today. So I like to get my program in as early as I possibly can. That's just me. Um, I make outreach calls when I'm in trouble. I have my God squad. I love that phrase. I've heard it in the rooms. Um, 
what I eat. I, I have, I mean, my abstinence is, is, that keeps me sober is um, I have my list of red light foods, which are not surprising. There are, there, I, it's, it's sourdough bread, gummy bears, anything that's really just a sugar bomb. Anything that's really like its entire purpose is to throw sugar at you and knock you into a coma. Um, actually, when I started my abstinence, my very first abstinence was just three meals a day. One plate is one meal. No eating after dinner. That's what I could do when I started. And um, soda, sugar soda, disappeared that day because I knew that if I had a sugar soda, the blood sugar roller coaster was going to start and there was no chance in hell I was going to make it through the rest of the day abstinently. So like, my, my thing in the early pro- uh, sobriety was like, stay off of the blood sugar roller coaster. You don't need it. Um, I, uh, what else do I do? I do a lot of service. Um, I keep service commitments at, at the meetings that I go to. Uh, I used to keep three. Now I have about two because I'm working a second program and I keep service commitments in that one. Um, I do service at the uh, intergroup level. I worked on the OA birthday party. I got away with it because I, I just volunteered to help with the play, which was like having fun for me. And so I get, but it's being of service to other people. I mean, I worked with some of the greatest people I've ever met in OA. By, by doing that show and it's a fantastic thing to be able to sit with people and talk about what I think is like the core of program which is not really what do I get but what am I bringing so you, you, you decide you're going to do this thing where you're going to write a musical that somehow shares the message and you, you get to tell people so, so if we go up there and everybody says oh my god that was as good as a Broadway show and everybody wants to see your career take off and everybody wants to see you be a star you have failed but if you go up there and you do something that's kind of funny and it's heartfelt and it actually does share the message and someone comes up to you and says, I still think about that line from that show when I want to eat. That was our goal. That's what we wanted. Because when I go to work and I listen to the guys tell jokes and stories, when I turn on the TV, when I go to the movies, I see people for whom overeaters are funny. Overeating is so silly to them. They don't struggle with it. Um, they, they go on a binge by choice and they stop binging when it stops being fun. And I don't. So I, I need people like you. I need the people in, the, in these rooms to be able to, to share about that fact that, by the way, this is really kind of, this tortured me. My overeating tortured me for 20 years of my life. You know, I'm not getting high school back. I'm not getting college back. Um, and I need to know, like, I need to take it seriously that if I start binging, I lose days and those days turn into weeks and those weeks turn into months. Eventually I lose years. I just lose them to the, to the mental obsession. So um, what is the mental obsession for me? I, uh, you know, there's that saying at the coffee machine and the, and the woman says, um, yeah, and, I, and the woman just walks away and all of a sudden it's because I'm a fat guy again. Um, but it's, I remember very early in abstinence, I went on a vacation to Santa Barbara. And after breakfast, I, I, all I had to do was stick to one plate. I had no rules about whether it was pasta, whether it was a sandwich, whether it was a salad, whatever it was. So I'm walking up and down the street in Santa Barbara for hours. And finally, I call my sponsor to check in. And he says, so what have you been doing on this wonderful vacation you bought yourself? And I said, for the last four hours, I've been picking lunch. And he said, has it occurred to you that if you just decided that lunch was always going to be a salad, you could enjoy your vacation? And that was when I realized that I'm back in the mental obsession. If it's going to be about the food, if it's going to be about I just need to find the perfect food plan, it's, you're going to continue to obsess. Is that five minutes? Yeah. Um, I don't know if I, I kind of repeated myself. 
I don't know if I said anything original or witty. Um, there's a couple things specifically that I wanted to mention, particularly because it's a podcast, so I'm going to capitalize on it. Um, one of the things that I'm doing now uh, for service to the inner group and with the birthday party is we're working together to try and create a mobile application for OA as a form of outreach. Um, it's something that people can have on their phones. It's the kind of thing that you could suggest a newcomer download because it will have quick access to the meeting list. It will have access eventually. Eventually, what I would love to see is that we'll also have access to Lifeline, like being able to buy individual uh, subscriptions to Lifeline through the app. It would have a digital newcomer's kit. Right now, it's going to have a timer, the meeting list, and um, it's, what it's really going to have is the ability for the inner group to push out to your phone notifications about when upcoming events are coming off. Things like the Roseanne Memorial, the birthday party, talent shows, the reprise of the birthday party play, special workshops that we put together. We think it would be, it'll be a much better way, much more cost efficient way to communicate with, with the membership, with the, with the fellowship. And it would also put OA more into the hands of younger people that are struggling because I think some people might not want to pick up a piece of paper that has OA written on it, but you can put an app on your phone and you can stay in touch and, and it's just you. It's just what you've got on your phone. It's not, it's not a big deal if it falls out of your purse and somebody says, what's this thing? So um, we're, we're raising money for it because I don't know how to iPhone program. If someone out there does and is interested in helping, um, my information is in the 12th stepper. It's ae.in.recovery at gmail.com. There's a website, a crowdfunding website set up at oa-app.com if you're interested in donating so that we can just hire a programmer and get it done. It can be done very quickly if, if we can get the funds together. Um, and that's, that's one of my current ways of being a service right now, and I think it's keeping me sober. So I thank you all for that opportunity to do that. Um, the only other thing I want to share is if you are new or if you are struggling, um, the only piece of advice I've ever, I, 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 that has ever worked for me is we do not come into these rooms to prove that we are right. We do not come into these rooms to keep doing it our way. We don't come into these rooms because we had the best ideas on how to deal with our food problems and deal with our life problems on our own. We come into these rooms when we're on our knees and when we really have nowhere else to go. This is the last house on the block. I, it's, part of, I, it's part of my story. I tried every other diet program I possibly could. I drank lemonade for 14 days. Like, it was awful, but I tried it. And it didn't work. And, you know, whenever I'm struggling, whenever I'm, I don't want to do what my sponsor tells me, I have to remind myself, what was it like the last time you said, hey, I'm, I am the person who knows best what to do for myself. Did that work? Um, the people you find in these rooms have nothing but love for each other. Um, you will never find a more supportive, caring group of people. And if you struggle with food, you won't find other people who understand it. Uh, you'll find people who say, well, why don't you just stop eating? And who do not understand why you might not be able to do that. And here you'll find that. If you share honestly and openly about exactly what is bothering you, I guarantee you someone will come up to you and say, I've been through that. Here's what I did. Here's what I do that keeps it from ruining my life. So if you're new, if you're struggling, I encourage you, put up your hand. Find somebody to sponsor you who has what you want. Do what your sponsor says. That's my biggest thing. If, you're, if you think sponsorship is about having a cop who will keep you in line, you are wrong. Sponsorship is driven by the sponsee. If you're listening to your sponsor, if you're doing what they say, if you're taking the suggestions, you have a sponsor. If you are arguing, if you are fighting, if you are saying, that doesn't make sense, you're stupid, here's what the big book says, here's what this says, you're sponsoring yourself. 
Sponsorship is, your sponsor is the person you listen to. If you're not listening to anybody, think about that. So that's what I have to share. Thank you so much for letting me be a part of Uh, says after the seventh tradition is read. So apparently for the for eight through twelve, I'm supposed to talk over her. This is the time for questions only. There is no sharing at this meeting. If you need to share, please do so with any one of us after the meeting. Also, please remember that the opinions of the leader are my own and not those of Overeaters Anonymous as a whole. When asking questions, you need not identify yourself. Please remember if you ask a question, your voice may be audible on the OA podcast. Any questions? Go for it. What would you, uh, what advice would you give or what would you say to somebody who is just having trouble dealing with the concept of God? Uh, the question is, what would I do, uh, what would I say to somebody who is having trouble with the concept of God? Um, God is one choice of higher power that's available to us. Um, the book says that you get to pick your own conception of God. Um, but uh, I understand that a lot of, you know, I had troubles with God when I came in, which is weird because I always believed in God. Um, but I always considered myself equal to God. God is an intelligent entity in the universe. I'm an intelligent entity in the universe. What does he have that I don't? Um, what, the first time I ever shared at a meeting, I said, um, I understand that we all have to go on a diet. And I understand that we all help each other through this kind of group therapy thing going on here. Uh, I don't understand why I'm going to do all of this work and then give some God all of the credit. And um, that was where I started. Uh, I found God because I said to my sponsor, I've started praying. And he said, okay, what do you pray for? And I said, "Um, I want God to show me what my natural body looks like. I wanted to show me what it looked like before I got depressed, before my parents died, before I went crazy, before I got into this whole compulsive mess. Just what do I look like naturally? My sponsor said, that sounds like it's a really clever way of saying God make me thin. And I said, it is clever. Thank you for noticing. Um, And he said, what have you prayed to know what God's will is for you and to have the power to carry that out? And I said, I don't want to pray for that. And he said, why not? I said, I'm terrified that God's will is that I will be happy I will be satisfied, I will be completely content, and I'll be fat. And he said, so this is, where we, this is what it comes down to. If God, the thing running the entire universe, wanted that, could you do anything to stop it? And I said, yes. <laughs> I don't know what yet, but give me a while. I'm still working on it, but... Um, there's something bigger than you. Uh, the sun is not burning some unimaginable number of you know, hydrogen atoms because I set it in motion. This huge planet, you know, gravity doesn't work because I tell it to. I live in a world of things that are bigger than me. Um, I'm not going to read the quote, but there's a brilliant quote in um, Seven Pillars of Wisdom where Lawrence of Arabia uh, basically says... He, he realized that these people he was living with, they couldn't look for God inside themselves because they were too certain that they were within God. That God was everything that they see. You know, they have no, you, you have no power. You cannot simply say, I wish something to be so and it is so. So you're not God. You're not in charge. And since there are things that you have to deal with, that you have to put up with, that you don't have control over, how are you going to do that? 
That's, that's what God became for me, is how do I deal with things that I just can't change through my own willpower? Um, you can decide that that's intelligence or not, but really I think 12-step work starts at I'm being beaten and I want to, be, I want to thrive. So how do, I get, how do I deal with something that's too big for me to deal with on my own? Something's bigger than me, that's it. There was a hand up over here. Um, well, you kind of how do I handle grief and loss and stay sane and sober through it? So, um, when I got broken up with this last time, I, uh, Thank you for asking. I like this story. Um, this <laughs> for the record, I was broken up with uh, the day before Valentine's Day, which this year was Friday the 13th. And I had a friend who happily pointed that out to me. So I get to add that to the bucket list of, of things that have happened. Um, how do I deal with grief and loss? A uh, shift in perspective and being of service and getting out of myself helps. Nothing's going to stop the fact that it feels like crap to have someone say they don't want to be with you, to have a job say they're not going to hire you. Um, what I did was I had actually, uh, because I was with somebody and Valentine's Day was coming up, I decided to not go see this day of movie marathons with some fellows in OA. And when I got broken up with, I said, I'm going to go see my day of movie marathons. Um, watching movies about the civil rights movement is, is very cathartic. Uh, if you're, if you're going through it, um, people who've dealt with things worse than what you're dealing with. Um, but fall back into the fellowship. I make a lot of calls. I bore the crap out of people. Um, with all of my petty problems, I, I have a, l- a large list of people that I can call that I've collected in the rooms. They know that I take their call if they're going through something, and I will take and I and they take mine. Um, I talk and I talk and I talk and I talk. I don't sit alone in silence and and try to figure out how not to have the feelings that I'm having. I share my feelings openly and I accept that you know it's my turn to go ahead and be a little upset. Um, that's my story. My story is I'm not going to tell anybody what's going on with me. My job is to demonstrate that I am a mature, enlightened adult. I told one guy, you know, well, I got broken up with, but I don't, you know, I feel like if I'm really taking the third step and turning things over to God, it shouldn't bother me. He says, oh, yeah, I'm a wantless ball of light, too. <laughs> but, um, and I inventory it. That's the other thing is um, I am still human and I have character defects. It's three years in and I finally kind of heard the message that character defects are not the crap that you do that is like unworthy of you. Most of the time, I thought character defects were like immoral actions I was taking because I thought they would get me something. Some character defects are um, just as simple as not being in acceptance. This person doesn't want to be with you. That job wasn't your job. Um, Some character defects are like just things about you that don't work for you. Depression, obsession over like the, the things that you didn't get instead of gratitude for the things that you do. What helped me get through it this last time was I had fellows and I could sit there and I could say to myself over and over again, these people want to be with me. These people think I'm a fine person. You know, I, that, that's a gift of the program is that I, I, I no longer go and sit with, you know, you're the only one who understands me, Cherry Garcia. You're the only one who really gets it. Um, <laughs> the, um, 
yeah, just getting out of myself and then going and being of as much service as I possibly could um, makes me feel good about myself and, and difficult emotions pass. My therapist says, if you actually just gave in to whatever like this horrible emotion is that you're trying so hard not to feel, it would probably be over in 90 seconds. It would feel awful, but then it would be over and you'd be through it. So learning to also just sit and say, it's okay that right now I'm just going to feel really crappy and see what's on the other side. Knowing that I can call people if doing that threatens my sobriety in any way. So, Dan. Hi, Aaron. Thank you. And I hope they can hear it on the podcast. Uh, yeah. So my question, my question is, Thank do you want to go on a date? <laughs> 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 How can I Here's my question. So it sounds like you have a really very clear concept of your absence. Why is that important? Um, for me, it's because I have, I consider myself to have a medical condition and I would never, I don't, I, this is, I've, I've been, this is a tricky territory because I want to say like, if I had cancer, I'd go get chemo. But I know there's some people who don't do that. I know there's some people who try to beat it with raw food, with exercise, and that's fine. Um, I think that I have a medical condition and I believe when the doctor's opinion says it is unavoidable if you put that thing that you're allergic to into your body, you're going to experience the allergic reaction. You have no ability to tell the cells of your body to not be constituted the way that they are. I cannot eat 10,000 calories of ice cream and tell my cells, just ignore that. Just, just don't, 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 don't. I know I, I know I put this into the place where I put things because I want you to do stuff, take it apart, store it, and let it work for me. Don't do that with this stuff. I don't have that setting. Um... My body works according to rules, and, and one of those rules is that there are foods that I'm allergic to. If I had a peanut allergy, you would not see me... Like, there are foods that like, get labeled these days prepared in a facility that also deals with peanuts because it can be that severe. If I had a, an allergy that severe, you would not catch me saying, well, I didn't know if it had sugar in it, but you know, my mom made it, so I ate it. You, I, no, tell me if it has peanuts, and if I don't know, I'm not touching it. Like that, that is my clarity. So I don't, uh, my focus is not activating the allergy at all costs. Because if I, if I do, the other side of it is my allergy is not actually life-threatening, but it's progressive. So like one of the things that terrifies me is I can probably add a little something extra to my food today. But if that, if I open up the negotiation, okay, another quote from my, my, my sponsor <laughs> I'll, I'll do the clean version, uh, but <laughs> negotiating with food is like having sex with a gorilla. The gorilla lets you know when you're done. Um, if I open up the negotiation, what happens is, um, let's say that it's, it's work and they're serving free stuff and I decide I'll go ahead and have the smallest possible serving of that treat. It will quickly become, well, then I can have that treat during special occasions at work, like once a year. Like on my birthday, I can have that treat. I can have that treat like, you know, on, on the 8th of July every year. You know what? I can have that treat on the 8th of every month because once a month isn't going to kill you, right? Any, no doctor would tell you that you're going to balloon up to thousands of pounds if you have this little treat once on the 8th of every month. But, you know, the 8th was also a Tuesday. What if I made it like every third Tuesday? 
or every fourth Tuesday, because then technically it's almost like a month, but you might get one or two extra throughout the year. By the time I'm done, it will it will become every Tuesday, and then it will become every day at three o'clock, and then it'll be like I don't know why why, why I can't stop doing this all the time. It just it go, it goes down. It's a slippery slope for me. The worst thing that could happen is I experiment, and it goes well the first time. Because then I have to fight it all over again. And I don't know if any of you have had the experience of having to like surrender to your abstinence in program. I don't ever want to have to do that again. I don't want it like that. It's hard to surrender. I've had to surrender in a second program and it's always painful. So I'd rather just stay surrendered and not, not worry about it. So that's why. Are we done? All right, we're done. Um,